0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McCrae. It's a major weapon on the front lines of the fight against the common cold. It's not high tech and probably not what you think. On today's program, the benefits of mucus
2: because your nose is the filter for your lungs. It traps all the dust and dirt and particles. The nose humidifies that air when it comes in, and it also protects you from getting sick.
3: Mayo Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat Specialist Dr. Aaron O'Brien is here to talk about how our bodies help us fight symptoms of the common cold and sinusitis. Also
1: on the program, we're wrapping up American Heart Month with answers to your tweeted questions about heart health.
3: And PSA testing for prostate cancer. Just who can it help and when to start testing.
1: All that... Along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. No, Tracy, springtime may be just around the corner. Although, if you live in Minnesota... (laughs) I've got my
3: fingers crossed, ...other parts
1: of this country, you may question that. (laughs) It is still here and in a lot of parts of the country. Cold and flu season. And runny noses and draining sinuses are just a part of life for a lot of us. In fact, those symptoms can sometimes be worse than the coughing and the sneezing. But have you ever wondered why you produce so much, well, mucus or snot during a cold? (laughs) And And why that might
3: actually be a good thing? Yeah, that's the biggest part. I had no idea that mucus was good for us. Well, our guest today sure has. In fact, she's an expert on the role of mucus and health and a whole lot more. Dr. Aaron O'Brien is an ear, nose, and throat specialist at Mayo Clinic. Dr. O'Brien is here to talk about managing cold symptoms, sinusitis, and other common ENT problems. Welcome back to the program, Dr. O'Brien. Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. O'Brien, welcome. It, you know, it seems like uh, mucus is a nuisance, but actually, you're going to tell us it's a good thing?
2: It's a good thing. If you have mucus in your nose, then your nose is working. You make a lot more mucus probably than most people realize, and in fact, I'm Shocking my patients commonly when I tell them how much mucus they produce all day. What we don't recognize is that we swallow it all the time. Your nose, when it's healthy, makes one to two cups of mucus every day that we swallow all the time. One to two cups? That's a lot.
3: That is a lot. I don't like to think of that all at once. So you could get dehydrated
1: even if you didn't do anything else. But you, actually, your body saves that? I mean, is you, you recycle that? You swallow it <laughs> and
3: you
2: recycle it, we'll
3: say. <laughs> it's recyclable. So there's yeah. really, truly a benefit of mucus.
2: Keeping your nose moist is important because your nose is the filter for your lungs. It traps all the dust and dirt and particles so that they don't end up in your lungs. The nose humidifies that air when it comes in so you don't get dry air hitting your lungs. And... It also protects you from getting sick.
3: Can we talk about um, the difference in the color? Of the mucus because I think he said snot and I think I'm not sure that snot and mucus are the same thing it's and I can't the same. believe I'm going to ask you this
2: question. They are the same. Yeah. Yes. Although my children asked me to clarify if I, was, if I was going to talk about snot or boogers, but whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it's all the same thing. the The mucus that your nose produces can change in color, and if you are dehydrated, it can be thicker or it can change color. Changing color doesn't necessarily mean you're sick. If you do have a cold, it can change in color, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's an infection or a bacterial infection that may just be your immune system fighting off that cold. So that's what I have been
3: thinking the last couple of years, I that uh, if it's allergies or if it's just histamines that are making the mucus flow, then it's clear, but if you have a cold or a virus, then it's yellow or green. Is that true? Do I have that right?
2: It can change colors the longer you've been sick. So initially you may just be blowing out clear mucus mm-hmm. and then it can change color. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bacterial infection. It does not necessarily mean you need antibiotics. It means your immune system is dumping white blood cells to fight off that infection. So your immune system's working.
1: So color doesn't really count when it comes to telling whether or not you have a viral infection or bacterial.
2: Not necessarily. Usually timing will tell if it's a virus or a bacterial infection. If you You've been sick with a cold for a week and you were starting to get better and then you get worse now it's more mucus maybe it's just one side maybe it is yellow or green but again it's that timing after a week if it's getting worse we call that the double bump you were getting better and now you're getting worse that's when you may have a bacterial sinusitis and that may be the time to talk to your doctor about antibiotics if you're not getting better.
1: So, you told us that mucus was good and all of the good things that it does when you're not sick, but when you do get sick, you seem to produce a lot more mucus and because you have to blow your nose, why is that?
2: Two things. One is it may be protective. It's helping you clear that virus. You're getting that virus out with the nose blowing, but there's also a theory that the virus makes you produce more mucus. The virus wants to be spread around. So, if it can cause your nose to make more mucus, you're more likely to Get that mucus spread around and spread that virus to other people. So,
3: what just- about too much mucus? Can you can? Well, I'm thinking now with the people who have allergies that you know your nose constantly runs. It seems
2: like then I'm making three or four cups of mucus. I'm doubling up my output. That's true. Some <laughs> conditions can cause more mucus. Like you said, allergies, mm-hmm. and we're coming up to tree pollen is what's going to be first here in the spring, and people will produce more mucus as a response to their allergies. Some people produce more mucus when they eat hot, spicy foods or they go out in the cold. Those are different cause for more mucus. Some people get more mucus with reflux. So you can have heartburn and that irritation, we think, can cause your nose to produce more mucus. So there's lots of reasons why more mucus can occur.
3: What is that you just mentioned, the spicy foods and being outside in cold that makes your nose run? What is it that does that?
2: So part of the production of mucus is controlled by nerves in your nose. And those nerves also produce the saliva, Mm -hmm. so eating spicy foods, sometimes there's a sort of a cross-reaction and and in addition to making more saliva, you make more mucus, and there's a response to going out in the cold, which now in the middle of winter, people might notice, coming in and out of cold to a hot room, you may get a runny nose. There's medications that can help dry up that mucus when people have that condition. Some people have so much runny nose when they eat, they stop going out to restaurants, they don't want to be around other people when they're eating because it bothers them so much, and we can work on that.
1: So color doesn't really uh, matter, but you did mention that when you have a cold and you increase mucus production, your body is trying to clear the virus. So the question is, is it okay to take an antihistamine that will dry up some of that, uh, stop some of that mucus production?
2: I'd say antihistamines are better for allergies. Um, Drying up the mucus may not help when you're trying to get over a cold because you do want to get that. Cold out the mucus out, and so actually rinsing with saline can be helpful because you do want to clear that out of your nose. So I'm a big advocate for rinsing with saline.
3: I think the last time you were here is when we started talking about the difference between the neti pots and the bottles when it comes to rinsing your nose. Um, you and I both like the bottles. Do I remember that correctly? That's great. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I think it's easier to squeeze it in one side, have everything come out the other. The pots look like little teapots, and you tip your head and try to pour, and that can be a little difficult for some people.
1: Is that a good idea
3: for a cold?
2: I think it's really helpful. When I get sick I I do a rinse, and I have my patients do a rinse, and my it kids will do a rinse. It feels
3: good, actually, because it seems in the winter, when you, you know you get so dried out, and you sometimes, especially when it's really cold and dry, it kind of feels good to rinse your sinuses. Tom, you're missing out. Rinse those sinuses. <laughs> You'll I be have one of those a dream. Little things.
2: I
1: <laughs> hope I never have to use it again.
2: But it's, it's not so bad.
1: <laughs> the common cold. Are we any closer to a cure? People have been trying to do it for a, a thousand years.
2: I think the viruses are keeping up with us. I uh, don't think we're closer to any cure, but I think rinses help. Drinking lots of water. Sounds funny, you wanna people wanna dry up their mucus, but actually thinning it out by drinking more helps.
1: Aren't there a uh, hundred different viruses that can cause the common cold? There's lots There's, of
2: different ones, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And even if, so if you have one cold, doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get another one because it's a different virus. A- absolutely. We're talking with Mayo ENT specialist, Dr. Aaron O'Brien, about the common cold and sinus problems. We'll take a short break.
3: And when we come back, myth or matter of fact, there could be a connection between sinusitis and migraine headaches. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're here with Mayo Ear, Nose, and Throat Specialist, Dr. Aaron O'Brien, who concentrates her practice on treatment of disorders of the nose. And that includes the sinuses, doesn't it, Dr. O'Brien? Absolutely. Big season for sinus problems this year?
2: Winter usually worse, absolutely. And um, I see, obviously, lots of acute sinusitis, but mostly chronic sinusitis. People who um, have polyps, people who have sinus infections for more than 12 weeks or sinus symptoms more than 12 weeks in a row would be considered a chronic sinusitis. We see lots of asthma and allergies also because there's crossover with lower airway or asthma symptoms and sinus disease.
3: Yeah, I think of sinusitis as, you know, somebody gets a really, really bad head cold and then it becomes a sinus infection. But those are kind of... Two different cats, aren't they?
2: There are people who get a chronic infection like you talked about, but also Mm -hmm. people who have asthma. They have inflammation and polyps, and we don't think that that's necessarily infection. That's more inflammation in the nose and sinuses.
1: So how do you know the difference between the common cold and, and sinusitis, and don't they sort of go together?
2: The patients I see who have chronic sinus disease, they don't necessarily have a history of getting sick with a cold. They get more exacerbation of their asthma, They can't breathe well. They can't smell well. They've got congestion as opposed to the infection where you're blowing green stuff out.
3: We talked uh, before the break about flushing out your sinuses. People who have the tendency, who they get sinusitis really easily, is that a good idea for them to be doing continually?
2: You can do it continually or you can do it just when you get a cold, when you feel those cold symptoms starting. It may shorten the duration of your cold.
3: How do you know if
1: you have sinusitis?
2: As it's opposed to just the common cold. Well, it's actually difficult sometimes to diagnose sinusitis. I have a scope. I can look in people's noses. We can get a CT scan if we're not sure. But if you're going to your family practice doctor, it may be difficult to know. And the symptoms of sinusitis have crossover with other yeah. disorders. Yeah,
3: that's right. So that was our myth or matter of fact. There, is a, there can be a connection between sinusitis and migraine headaches. How is that linked
2: I have a lot of patients who come to my clinic because they have been diagnosed with sinusitis or diagnosed with sinus headaches because they get symptoms of sinus pressure, congestion, throbbing in their sinuses.
3: It hurts so bad.
2: It hurts so bad. (laughs) But sinus headaches, not a real diagnosis. And in fact, studies where they look at people who have sinus headaches, most of those people actually have migraines.
3: So you can get migraine pain In your sinuses.
2: Absolutely. And it doesn't
3: mean that you have sinus problems, it means you have migraine problems.
2: It means your migraines make your sinuses hurt. That's amazing. How many patients does this affect? Probably most patients with sinus headaches actually have migraines that have not been diagnosed, or some people have different types of migraines, and a sinus headache is still not a sinus problem. It's still a type of their migraines.
3: How do you figure out that it's a migraine issue and not a sinus issue?
2: It's a matter of listening (laughs) and getting a good history. So most patients who come in, if they say, I get throbbing, my head hurts, my face hurts, I feel it behind my eyes, when pain is the first symptom that you have or pressure or throbbing, that's probably a migraine.
1: You mentioned that sinusitis might be difficult to to diagnose, I guess, because you can't see in there. Right. Um, But you mentioned a CT scan. Is that a definitive way to diagnose sinusitis?
2: It is, but it's expensive and it exposes people to radiation, so we save that for patients who are getting a lot of antibiotics or we're not sure what's going on. It may be beneficial. If you're going to the doctor several times a year to get antibiotics for these symptoms in, keeps coming back or it's not getting better then a ct scan may be useful but if you have a history that fits migraines throbbing pain behind your eyes you feel better if you take a nap you feel worse if you're active those can be migraine symptoms instead of antibiotics ask your doctor for a migraine medication
1: Hmm. Hmm. how does the ct what do you see on the ct scan that tells you
2: The sinuses should just be full of air, empty spaces. On a CT scan, if the linings are thickened or they're blocked with mucus, then we can diagnose a migraine. I mean, I'm sorry, a sinus infection.
1: Are most sinus infections caused by a bacteria such that an antibiotic will cure it or solve the problem, or is a lot of sinusitis viral?
2: Most is viral. Most acute sinusitis is virus, probably 80 or 90%. It's those cases where it's lasting 7 to 10 days. That's when we worry that there's a bacterial component. So Mm. if it
1: doesn't get better in 7 to 10 days, then you might prescribe antibiotics.
2: Right. And even studies on antibiotics show it might help you get better a day or two sooner. But most people clear bacterial sinus infections even without antibiotics. So I'd recommend holding off on antibiotics if you can.
1: Is there a way to culture the sinus so that you know for sure If it's bacterial and what the bacteria is?
2: We do sometimes get a culture, but the thing is we now know that normal sinuses have bacteria. Mm -hmm. There's good, healthy bacteria in your sinus, just like there's bacteria over your whole body. And that's new research. We used to think it was sterile. Now we know it's not.
3: Since the last time that you were here, we have added our executive senior producer, Rich Dietman, to the program. And he came up with something that I have to throw at you because I think this is so interesting. So myth or matter of fact... Humming is good for your sinuses. Fact.
2: It's a fact. (laughs) Absolutely. Why is that? that? The nose produces a gas called nitric oxide. The sinuses produce the highest level of nitric oxide in the body, and nitric oxide kills bacteria. And they've done studies where they can measure the nitric oxide that comes out of your nose. If you hum, those levels go up 15 times. The humming releases that gas into your airways. So Hmm. if you
3: are having sinus issues, you should hum. It may help. <laughs> How many times a day? Give me a, hum, a, oh, a humming gosh. prescription.
2: I guess if you just hum your favorite Taylor Swift song a couple times a day, oh, maybe that gosh. would help. I'm not sure. You know, it's um, also,
3: uh, we're just winding up here, kids' ear, nose, and throat month. And I know that you are uh, mostly the nose part of that ENT, but I know that you've got kids, and kids have ear issues. Are ear issues a big bigger deal for children than they are for adults?
2: Absolutely. Kids get more ear infections. Just the way our the kids' heads are shaped, their ears don't drain as well, and so they're more prone to ear infections. And so when kids get a cold, they're more likely to get an ear infection than an adult is.
1: And is that most often viral also?
2: You can get a viral ear infection. You can also get bacterial ear infections. But with the new guidelines for treating ear infections, we try to hold off on antibiotics for older kids. Kids younger than 2... With an ear infection, they still are treated with antibiotics. But older kids, because they will often clear without antibiotics, we do try to hold off.
3: And if you have lots of ear infections for kids, um, does that can that ultimately end, lead to hearing loss, or are those two things not like, The associated? fluid
2: can stick around for a couple months. There's been debate on whether tubes are helpful or not. For some kids, tubes may be useful.
1: So tubes in the eardrum to help drain out the infection.
2: Right, and it can drain the fluid off, and it can help with hearing some kids, though, will clear that fluid without tubes, so that's still an area of debate.
3: And what about uh, tonsils, the other part of that, the ear, nose, and throat piece? Are, it seems like I don't hear about as many children getting their tonsils removed these days they as used it used to, to be. be.
2: That used to be one of the most common surgeries that was done of any surgery. used to be done almost on every kid, and now we wait until there's a certain number of infections, or for kids with snoring and sleep apnea, tonsillectomy can help.
1: So normally you want to keep your tonsils, right? For, although for no good reason other than you don't have to have them out.
2: They actually have white blood cells that help protect against infection. They're, they're lymphoid tissue.
1: So if you're older, if you've, if you've got your tonsils, you're less prone to get some infections?
2: I would just say that getting them out isn't necessary. If you're not sick commonly, people ask, should I just get my tonsils out? I would keep them.
3: Very good. Thank you so much, keep Dr. Your <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to keep mine. I still have them. How about you? I do. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. O'Brien. It was a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we've been talking about our hearts all month long, from the role of menopause and erectile dysfunction in the health of our hearts to the future of battling heart disease with cardiac regeneration. We'll wrap up American Heart Awareness Month next with a cardiologist in studio to answer your tweeted questions about heart health.
1: And a reminder that if you have a question you'd like us to answer on our upcoming program, tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at Radio at mayo.edu.
3: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. It's time to talk about getting a deep sleep. Scientists from the Imperial College of London found that switching on one part of the brain chemically can trigger a deep sleep. They looked at how sedatives work in the brain, and this could lead to better remedies for insomnia and more effective anesthesia drugs. They found it's just one distinct area of the brain that triggers deep sleep, and knowing this paves the way for the creation of better targeted sedative drugs and sleeping pills and now from mayo clinic you'd think a decline in smoking rates would mean fewer cases of lung cancer but a study from mayo shows many people who could have benefited from early detection of lung cancer are dying because they don't qualify for screening with low-dose ct scans this means they may be diagnosed later when treatment can't cure it here's dr ping yang what we found is that uh, uh, the people actually meeting the criteria for screening declining, and that means f- uh, at the end, fewer people are identified through the screening program. Dr. Yang says researchers and policymakers need to reconsider screening criteria to identify more people who develop lung cancer. And this was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And now let's talk about what's for dinner. We have so many choices, but scientists who published a paper in the journal Endocrinology say all these choices increase the obesity issue. You see, some say that how your mother eats while pregnant influences your food choices, but this research shows your environment may be just as strong a force they found in mice even if there are high and low fat options around it doesn't matter more choices leads to more eating they say understanding the root of the obesity issue is important and if you make good choices you can overcome natural tendencies and be healthy in the long run and that's a look at headlines from the mayo clinic news network i'm vivian williams
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, throughout February, we've been observing American Heart Month with a series of guests who have discussed a whole range of heart-related topics, from links between heart disease and menopause and erectile dysfunction to repairing heart damage with stem cell therapy. And during the month, we asked you to tweet us your heart-related questions, and you did. Thanks from Mayo Clinic Radio.
3: Yeah, that's great. And in the studio with us to answer some of those questions is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Rekha Mancad. Welcome to the program, Dr. Mancad. Thanks a lot,
4: Tracy, Tom. Pleasure great. to be here. Nice to have you. Thank you. So let's
1: start with question number one, a tweet number one.
3: That's right. Uh, This comes from uh, Bloodborne. They say, other than doing cardio exercises, what are some steps that one can take towards
4: maintaining a a healthy heart? That's a great question. And exercise is clearly one of the very important things to do. But along with that, we need to have a healthy diet. So it's very important to have a heart-healthy diet. And we can make a plug here for the Mediterranean diet, which is considered heart-healthy. What that entails is having uh, most of your protein come from a fish, it's whole grains, good fats, which are olive oils, uh, nuts, and um, a lot of vegetables. So that's considered heart healthy. So maintaining a good, healthy diet is part of being heart healthy.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but in terms of the Mediterranean diet, what's your favorite cookbook? What that for the, a Mediterranean diet?
4: Well, there's actually, I mean, there's a lot of information on the Mediterranean diet, so I don't know if I have a specific cookbook that I would recommend, but I think if you just go online and check on Mediterranean diet, there'll be a lot of information out there because it's getting a lot of um, sort of play right now. There is a big study came out very recently talking about the incredible benefits, cardiovascular benefits of a Mediterranean diet. So I think if you just, uh, you know, everybody is online, just Google Mediterranean diet and you're going to find information. The Mayo Clinic uh, Diet Book also has information on oh, the... Oh, you said exactly uh, the right uh, thing. There you go. <laughs> the Diet Book has that information as well. And obviously, some of these things need to be tweaked if you have other medical conditions. Uh, you have to watch your salt if you have high blood pressure. If you're diabetic, you will have to adjust things as well. But clearly, the basis of the Mediterranean diet is very heart-healthy.
1: So I'm sorry. So now
4: exercise, diet. Right. And also, the other things the American Heart Association talks about is sort of knowing uh, your numbers. What does that mean, knowing your blood pressure? Knowing if you have elevated blood pressure, which is a risk for heart disease. And having a high blood pressure can be silent. You might not know you have it. So it's important to make sure that you get routine exams from your doctor to see you if you have high blood pressure. If there's family history of high blood pressure, it might be important that you get checked because you might be at risk. Knowing your cholesterol. You know, As an adult, we should have our cholesterol checked early in adulthood. And then if there's other risk factors like a family history or if you're diabetic, uh, you might need to get it checked at different frequencies throughout your lifetime.
3: Is it more important to know, because this is where I get confused, your
4: LDL or your HDL, is it important to know that breakdown for your cholesterol? It is important to know the breakdown because sometimes a person's cholesterol can be noted to be high, but if the makeup of that cholesterol has a lot of the good cholesterol, which is the HDL, then the overall number is not as worrisome because the makeup is actually more good than bad. So, I think it's very important that you do get the the whole panel, which includes mm-hmm. uh the HDL, the LDL, and triglycerides as well.
1: So you mentioned exercise, diet, and know your numbers, blood pressure, glucose, and cholesterol. I didn't hear you say anything about smoking, but yes, that's well, pretty that's, obvious. That's isn't? very obvious. I mean
4: <laughs> I we hope we've gotten that message across to everyone. Smoking is bad for the heart. And so clearly not smoking is critically important to become heart healthy
1: so if you keep those numbers under control if you are diabetic and you keep your glucose under control and if you're if you have high blood pressure and you keep your blood pressure under control and likewise with the uh, cholesterol if you keep all those things under control it really does make a significant difference doesn't it
4: it makes a huge difference and that's what we've actually seen is that if you do all of those things you can reduce your risk of dying of a cardiovascular uh, event substantially uh, certainly prematurely for sure and and the problem is is nobody does those things, and that's what we have found. But if you did those things, they're better than any medicine I can give you.
1: And if you do them, let's say you put this off for a while. Actually, 50 is sort of the magic age, isn't it? I mean, if you if you do these things, even if you're 50 or a little bit over – it still makes a huge difference. It
4: makes a difference no matter what age you are. So I'd say if you're 60, 70, 80, because we're all living a lot longer, it's never too late to get started. Our next tweeted question, any advice for post-menopausal women to prevent heart disease? Well I think that's a good question. The issue is is postmenopausal women are at risk for heart disease. That's when the prevalence of heart disease goes up dramatically in women, although it's there's still a risk younger than that. It's the same things we've already just mentioned. Right. It's the same risk factors. The importance to note is that at the time of menopause, the things that you thought were under control, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, may go out of whack. The hormonal changes that go along with menopause seem to make some of those risk factors more adverse.
3: We have a tweet from Lavender Link that says they went uh she went through through 6 months of chemo and her heart did well she's now on her septin and have heart palpitations
4: what can she do to help stop heart disease is chemotherapy hard on the heart It is hard on the heart, and we are finding a lot more about this. And this is really a new area called cardio oncology. We see that a lot of the chemotherapeutic agents actually can affect the heart. They can affect the heart muscle and make it weaker. It could do it early in the course, and it actually can do it much later, depending on the drug and the dose and the duration. So I think if you're getting chemotherapy, um, your oncologist, your primary care doctor, should be aware of that link, and to make sure that your heart is being checked out throughout the process of getting that chemotherapy.
3: Last week, you and I were at a Go Red for Women luncheon, and didn't you say here at Mayo they actually have someone now that
4: what is that person's job? Well, actually, we have a cardio-oncology clinic.
3: Cardio-oncology. Yeah, it's a
4: well-established clinic where there are specific cardiologists that um, have patients referred to them from usually the oncologist who might be at risk of heart disease related to their chemotherapy.
1: Does uh, Herceptin have a particularly deleterious effect on the heart?
4: Well, it actually has been linked to uh, cardiomyopathy, which means a weakening of the heart muscle. The uh, the thing about Herceptin is it's reversible. So some of the older uh, chemo, or some other chemotherapeutic agents have a irreversible effect on the heart. Herceptin, um, you can have a weakening of the heart muscle, but it goes away when you stop it, and you actually can be rechallenged with that medication. So it doesn't mean that you can't get it, but there is a link to heart failure with that medication.
1: Let me go back to that question that, uh, about uh, the link between heart disease and menopause, because I've never totally understood this: the, the link between hormones and heart disease. Uh, it, it suggests to me that because women have a higher incidence of heart disease post-menopause that it has something to do with the hormones. Correct. So why doesn't it make sense that giving estrogen that they don't have anymore would help prevent heart disease because they didn't have it when they were producing their own estrogen?
4: Well I think first of all this is controversial or some of the elements of what you asked are controversial. Estrogen is protective for the heart so that's why women uh, before menopause have protection because they have estrogen when you become menopausal and you lose estrogen you lose that protection um, and actually the studies that said estrogen were bad were actually studies done with older women who were much further out from menopause so they weren't right in menopause so actually we would say that what you have seen what we see with the literature is if you get started on hormones right when you start menopause there is no deleterious effect of that hormone therapy unless you have other contraindications. So it's not that hormones are all bad to take when you hit menopause. It has to be individualized and actually getting started early, low dose for the shortest duration, which we don't know what that is, Um, can actually, it may not prevent heart disease, but it doesn't accelerate heart disease.
1: But the only reason that you give hormones now is basically to prevent the, the symptoms of menopause. It's not to prevent heart disease.
4: Correct. It's not given for that reason. Whether it slows down heart disease, we're still trying to find that out. But if you're having a lot of those vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, other things related to menopause, getting hormones is not unreasonable. And our final tweet from Poet512 says, What's your take-home message for maintaining a healthy heart? Think all the things we just talked about. Know your numbers. Know your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your blood sugar. Maintain an ideal body weight. Exercise. Eat healthy. Very good.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Mancad, for coming in to answer our tweeted questions. You're our first tweeted, tweeting answer doctor. I don't wow, know. Thanks. We'll on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, the big three. Exercise, diet, know your numbers. Of course, that's fun. Thanks, Dr. Mancad. Thank
3: you very much. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, it's a PSA test. Still worth getting if you're a man concerned about prostate cancer. We'll talk with a Mayo Clinic urologist.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths in men. Number one, lung cancer, of course, but prostate cancer, number two. And because most men with prostate cancer have elevated levels of an enzyme called prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, in their blood, the PSA test has been used for many years to help diagnose prostate cancer.
3: But the PSA is not a perfect test, and thinking about its use has changed in recent years. In fact, some medical groups have modified their recommendations for even getting the test. Is it really useful or not?
1: Here to talk about the PSA test is Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Jeffrey Carnes. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carnes. Good to have you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So I know this is something that's uh, sometimes difficult to talk about, but the PSA, prostate specific antigen blood test, where do we stand?
5: Well... there is a lot of controversy um, regarding the PSA and a lot of times it would stand for patient stimulated anxiety uh, <laughs> for the PSA. Should I have uh, it or not? And, and this really, I think, um, falls under the category of the art of medicine as there's not any exact uh, right or wrong answer. In 2009, In uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, two studies were published. One was a large European study. Another one was a North American study. The first one was a European study on screening that looked at men age 55 uh, to 69 and offered them PSA, I believe, every four years. And at a follow-up of around a decade, there was a 20% reduction in the mortality, that's the death from prostate cancer, for those men that underwent screening. Now, that's on a population-based level.
1: Now, that's because it presumably was caught earlier because of an elevated PSA. That's that's correct. The majority were caught early um, because if you look at the stage
5: of the prostate cancer tumors and those that were screened, i.e., received a serum PSA, the blood test, versus those that didn't, those that were screened, had a lower grade, lower stage.
1: So caught it earlier uh, and presumably got it out or whatever the treatment was, if you catch it earlier, is more effective. Uh, Correct. With the caveat
5: being that there was also a companion paper that was the North American study that showed no survival benefit of Mm. being screened or non-screened. The problem with that predominantly U.S. study was that there was a large amount of contamination, meaning that, men that were supposed to not have been screened were getting screened or before even entering the study had a previous PSA, which means that they were already sort of the, called the group already. Um, they kind of uh, selected themselves as being a, a good uh, risk category, right, because they already had a PSA. So um, where, where are we with all this? If you even look at a separate study in Sweden uh, of men that were even a little bit younger, they started at the age of 50, received PSA screen every two years, there was almost a 50% reduction in mortality after 10 years for those that actually did get screened. The downside, as I was alluding to, is the fact that the PSA doesn't discriminate of a low-grade or a low-risk prostate cancer from a high risk. So there's a potential by undergoing PSA screening that you're diagnosed with a prostate cancer that may never affect your your life. Um Couldn't you do then, where does watchful waiting fall into this? Thanks, Tracy, for that question, (laughs) because I don't think it's a a matter of overdiagnosis per se, because we now know that with a low-risk prostate cancer that's defined as a lower grade, um, there is a potential for active surveillance, and we we currently offer that at Mayo Clinic as well as most urologists around the country. We know that those men can usually be safely watched, and there are ways we monitor them. Uh, We don't rely so much on the PSA, but we rely on other factors, and um, if they show um, evidence of progression, then we'll offer them definitive treatment, which is typically surgery or radiation.
1: So how do you know they're at low risk? The PSA was elevated, you were suspicious, and you did a biopsy. Is that correct? Yes,
5: the key there is the biopsy, and the biopsy would show us a low-grade prostate cancer, and the grade is actually an interesting type of grade in oncology because it's an architecture. It's not an individual cell level. Um, and that Gleason grading, as it's referred to, is named after a, a pathologist from Minnesota. Um, and it's, like I said, based on an architecture, and the low grade is considered a Gleason 6. So a 6 grade is a low grade where intermediate would be 7. And high grade would be
1: an 8, 9, and even 10. But isn't it good to know that it's there? Uh, and, and didn't the PSA in most instances help you know that there was a problem with the prostate, even if you ultimately discovered it was uh, uh, not life threatening?
5: Well, herein lies some of the controversy. I mean, it, and it probably falls on urologists' shoulders that we haven't done an adequate job counseling the patient. But as you know, there's, a, there's an intense anxiety that comes along with being given the diagnosis of cancer. Even if you tell the patient, your risk of dying of this cancer, if we do nothing, or we just monitor it closely in 10 years, is maybe 2%. They still know that there's a cancer. And one of the leading reasons that men cho- choose not to undergo active surveillance is, I think, because of the anxiety. Anxiety on part of the the patient, and even the treating uh, clinician. And we now we utilize other methods to monitor them. MRIs are uh, being performed now of just the prostate. There's genomic tests that are being offered on actually the tumor itself and other sort of um, PSA derivatives um, that, that are being done.
3: Because you're a urologist and you're working with patients all the time, what about the idea of uh, following the lead of what uh, – a thyroid cancer or a ductal breast cancer, there is a movement to rename that condition and take away the word cancer from the name of it. And thus the patients have less anxiety because they say, well, I don't have ductal breast cancer. I have this whatever. So is that's, that, that's, is that, that's, is that, that's kicked gonna... around <laughs> at meetings.
5: Uh, you know, whether we call it a neoplasm of low malignant potential. Um, but right now sort of the, the thought is, continue to call it a cancer. Uh, the new staging and grading system for prostate cancer will be out later this year. Uh, they may group them into a different category, but we do know that low-grade prostate cancer has a very low malignant potential.
1: So what's the bottom line? What's the recommendation from the uh, the people at Mayo Clinic regarding the PSA?
5: So I think there's a there's good reason to think about getting a PSA in your 40s as a baseline. However, that's not under the guidelines. The guidelines... Um, at least the uh, Urologic Association guidelines recommend um, a conversation you have with your primary care provider or urologist maybe starting at the age of 55, uh, and that's based on that European study because that's when they started uh, the, the trial. All right,
1: baseline PSA at between 40 and 55, depending on how I, you and your I, doctor look I think at. that. I mean,
5: we have data here in obsent County that shows that if you have a baseline PSA less than one, in your 40s, your chance of developing not only a prostate cancer in general, but a low-risk prostate cancer, I mean an a intermediate-risk prostate cancer or a higher-grade prostate cancer is less than a few percent points. All right, and when would you get another one? Well, you could
1: actually go to intervals such as every five years even if you got a baseline at, at uh, 40 all right. So the recommendation, get one at uh, between 40 and 55, and then follow it along uh, based on a discussion with you and your physician. I think that's a good recommendation, Tom. Dr. Jeffrey Carnes, urologist, Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tracy. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
3: Do you have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Schein.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.